Hey, uh, I'm reminded this morning as Russ was talking about uh, all the folks leaving and uh, reminded of a word that um, Rob has spoken a number of times. And it's simple, uh, but I think it's powerful, and that's no one gets to stay. And uh, that has been one of my favorite things about being a part of this community over the last 18 months, almost two years now, is that really that's our heartbeat, is that nobody gets to stay and that we want each person here to be willing to ask themselves the question is, where am I called? Where am I supposed to go? And just at least be sensitive to God's call in that way. Let me move this down so I can see you guys. So uh, I was reminded of that this morning and uh, proud of the folks in our, uh, our community that are leaving and have been willing to ask that question of themselves. So let's, let's actually give them a round of applause one more time because um, because it takes a significant step of faith to be willing to move out of your neighborhood and go across the world to serve Jesus. So that's really cool. Uh, well, hey, we're going to jump back into Jonah 3 this morning. Um, let me start by asking this question. Have you ever learned something from an unlikely source? Now here's, maybe, let me me give a little context to that. How about um, this situation where you were newly dating somebody or when you were newly dating your spouse that you thought you could just have long, long conversations and you could get to know everything about that person and then you went and visited their family (laughs) and you realized, wow, there was so much I had no idea about. So you learn something about that person you were dating, about your spouse, from the unlikely source of their parents, not necessarily from them. This one is becoming a reality in in my wife uh, and I's life. You think that you know a lot about yourself through self-reflection, through uh, a period of um, just becoming to know who you are, leaning into your strengths and your gifts, but then you have kids and you begin to learn a whole new side of yourself. And so the unlikely source of your kids kind of brings light, exposes maybe some of your weaknesses or or truly who you are. I have a great friend who uh, has been in the military um, or was in the military, active duty for the last four or five years. He's a part of our small group. And, And as we've just been processing how it's been for him to come back home, he's been here for about nine months now. Um, is, so we've kind of processed through that, and, and I'm not, uh, I don't know much about the military, and so I ask him questions, and, um, and when he goes on stories, he'll start saying, you know, a string of numbers and letters together about different uh, things that he was doing in the military, and, and he says, well, do you understand what that means? And I just said, oh, yeah, I, I watched the Hurt Locker, so I know everything <laughs> about, about the military. I know, I know how to get into his grill a little bit, but that would be another situation where I take an unlikely source and I say, oh, well, I've learned everything about the military because I've seen this movie. Obviously not the case, but I know it gets into John's head a little bit, so, so it's kind of fun. Uh, another instance, I had the opportunity to uh, be a camp counselor at a place called Camp Reed. Has anybody been to Camp Reed here? Yeah, that's fun to know. Um, so Camp Reed was a camp that I grew up at. It's a YMCA camp here um, just north of Spokane in Deer Park. Um, it's through the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. But I'd say by and large, um, it, it's not necessarily oriented around teaching things of Christ. Um, they're, they don't have a, a deep theology of wanting kids to come into camp and, and grow in their faith. They're really a, an open organization to anybody that comes in. So you'll have Christian kids and Buddhist kids and Hindu kids. So there's not a... Um, a a real strong emphasis 
on teaching Jesus at this camp. And yet I would say so much of my faith I learned through Camp Reed, this unlikely source, this source, this campus experience that really wasn't oriented towards teaching Jesus at all, and yet so much of my life has been shaped by the things that I did learn out there about selflessness and about joy, about positive attitude, about serving others before serving myself. And so another situation where an unlikely source really informed my faith. Jonah 3 is a little bit like that this morning. And if you've read through Jonah, you may know what I'm getting at. But let's recap the story before we jump in. I'll do it really, really quickly. God calls Jonah. Jonah hates Nineveh. Jonah runs. He gets on a boat. The storm comes. He's thrown off the boat. He's swallowed by a fish. And then he's vomited up onto the shore. That's kind of where we stand right now, through Jonah 2. This is the series that's happened, which brings us right into Jonah 3. So let's pray as we jump into the word here, and then we'll read this together. Lord, we, uh, we again pray for your mercy as we dive into your scriptures, knowing that um, you were too big to be fully known by us, and yet we continue to seek that. We continue to chase after you. We do pray that you uh, would open the scriptures to us today. Help us to learn from Jonah 3. May we find our story in the midst of this story. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So here's what Jonah 3 says, and you can follow along with me if you want. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had decreed he would bring upon them. He did not do it. So Jonah is given a second chance. He's called once again to be the mouthpiece for the Lord, to go into Nineveh, his enemy's city, and be the mouthpiece. Now let me give you a, a quick two or three minutes of history here from Tarshish, which is where Jonah had fleed to. It's about 550 miles. And so Jonah travels roughly 25-ish days is what people think, back to Nineveh which it says that the city was of such great importance it took a three days walk. Now, oftentimes people think that it me that means that the city was so big that it took three days to walk around the outside. But really what the scripture is getting at is the city was of such great importance. 
just culturally, religiously, politically, that you had to spend three days in the city in order to do it justice. That there were so, so many diplomats, so many things to see, so many people to meet with, that it took three full days for a diplomat or a, a prophet to come into the city and actually take in the full city. So he goes into this great city and he delivers this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, maybe even a little understated when we read it. But in their context, this meant a lot more than how we read it. You see, this number 40 was an incredibly important number in this time. 40 wasn't simply an increment of days, a number of months. It was much more than that. It was a warning of divine punishment and humility. We see it in the fact that the uh, Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, that Noah was on the boat for 40 days and 40 nights. And so this number follows throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, and it means something simply more than just an increment of time. And the word overthrown is the same Hebrew word that's used in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah. So as Jonah comes into the city, he says this short, simple statement, and yet it carries great political and cultural significance, so much so that when we read it, we may not get that. But the statement was powerful. Now, if you read this like me, you would say, well, why did they believe in Jonah in the first place? He was an Israelite. He came in. Why, why did they even listen to him? Partly, I think it's because of that statement, because there's so much more to the statement than just the words. But partly, you have to understand the history of where Syria was at in this point. History shows us that there were four things that would bring Assyrians to fast and put on sackcloth. The four things were invasion, solar eclipse, famine or disease, or natural disaster. Now, if you look at the history of this time, you know that at this point, Nineveh was being attacked on all of its borders consistently. And they think that King Ashuridan was the king during this point, and, that, and they know in that his tenth year, there was a full solar eclipse that happened. They also know that during the same time period, there was an earthquake. And so you see right off, the, right off the bat that three of those things are checked off that list. And so Nineveh finds themselves in this situation or in a time where they're vulnerable, where they're beginning to question what's going on. And it's at that point that Jonah comes in. And I think that's maybe why they listened to his message. But what I love about that, what I love about getting into the history of this stuff is you see that God was working in the city long before Jonah was ever sent there. That God had been working through history, through natural disasters, through a solar eclipse, through all sorts of crazy things to prepare Nineveh for Jonah's message. Pretty cool when you look at it that way. So Jonah 3 ends with a statement, God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So what's so interesting about Jonah 3 is the protagonist, Jonah, the book that it's uh, named after, that he's named after, actually becomes the supporting actor in this point, and Nineveh takes center stage. I think you could actually argue that we learn more about living a godly life from Nineveh than we do from Jonah in this scripture. There are three ways that we see the Ninevites uh, and how they remind us to live a godly life. The first being that Nineveh truly repents. It says the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
You see, repentance isn't simply being caught. It's not just being sorry for our sin. It's not just being sorry for the dysfunction that we carry around in our lives. It's more than just trying to appease an angry God. It's much deeper and it's much more spiritual than those things. The Ninevites, in their own admission, were a rough and hated people. They were violent. They were angry. It says it in the scripture. The king acknowledges it. And yet, once hearing the message of the Lord, hearing it from Jonah, they took action in the immediate. They begin to fast. They put on sackcloth. They begin to mourn. But they also changed in the long term. They turned away from their wicked and violent ways. I'm convinced that the American church doesn't repent all that well. We associate repentance with Ash Wednesday, and we should at some level. But does our repentance go beyond Ash Wednesday? Or is repentance simply, sim, uh, simply what we think we need to do to get to God? Because it's not. It really is the continual process of turning our lives around. We don't repent to receive grace. Because we can trust that we've already received God's grace. It's the free gift of God. We repent because we know it's the only way that we can fully live in the joy and the life that Jesus offers us. Repentance is humbly and courageously turning toward Christ with love. Absolutely, there's an element of acknowledging our sin in the midst of it, but it's also living into that fullness that Jesus offers. I was at a, uh, I have a lot of camp stories today. <laughs> I was at a high school camp with, uh, with a group of about 12 or, or 15 high school guys. And uh, we had gone through really a, a full gospel, gospel proclamation over the course of five or six days. And we were on the last night at camp, and uh, the camp speaker was going to use um, this imagery of taking a rock, which symbolized your sin, and throwing it into the water. This idea that we are letting go of our sin. If you are coming into the faith in Jesus, that this is a way that you can symbolize that. And so he set this up and he talked to, you know, he grabbed, we were kind of all out on the, on the shore and he grabbed a little stone and he held it up and he says, this, allow this to symbolize your sin. And as you cast it off, know that you are made anew in Jesus. And I was standing there with five or six of the guys that I had brought and right behind me, there was another guy uh, with his leader, and he had a, a rock about this big. <laughs> and he was holding it, and as the speaker was talking, he looked down at his rock, and I could hear him lean over to his, um, to his leader. And right as the speaker said, may, may this rock symbolize the sin in your life, he looked over to his leader and said, I better go get a bigger rock. <laughs> I, I love the kid's heart, and it, I mean, it, it's kind of a, a beautiful statement, maybe a little ignorant, but I remember thinking in that moment, does he really get the imagery here? Or is he going to get stuck on the size of his rock? Keller says this, The more you see your own flaws and sin, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defense and admit the true dimensions of your sin. The sin under all other sins is the lack of joy in Christ. Let me read that last statement again. The sin under all other sins is the lack of joy in Christ. 
You see, I think we miss repentance at some level because we think it ends with a statement, I think I need a bigger rock. True repentance is not about beating ourselves up over the size of our rock. When that's what it becomes, that's when we lose focus on Jesus. It's when we lose focus on the life and the joy that Jesus offers us here and now. David Guzik says this, In the Christian life, repentance does not describe what you must do to turn to God. It describes the very process of turning to God. When we truly turn to Him, we turn away from the things that displease Him. You see, repentance isn't simply acknowledging the size of your rock. It's seeking to live without your rock altogether. The first thing that Nineveh reminds us of is that repentance is a way of life and not just something we do occasionally. Nineveh reminds us of a second thing. It reminds us that we can seek redemption of the community. In Nineveh, this is what the scripture says, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. You see, this king seems to display a desire for the whole community to experience redemption. He calls a decree for every man, every animal, to begin to repent, to begin to turn their life around. I think the king intuitively knew that not just him was in need of redemption, but the entire community, the whole system, everything needed the Lord's redemption. And so his response is really a response for the whole community. His response is really one that militates against our 21st century individualistic idea of redemption, where we're really only concerned with what happens to us. I mean, when we just think about redemption, when we think about repentance, do we think about this happening outside of ourselves? Do we think about the redemption of our neighbor? Do we think about the redemption of the oppressive systems that play out in our world? Or are we too stuck in this individualistic nature of just thinking about where am I going to go when I die? If we're going to talk about being a community, if we're going to talk about being relational, then we need to spend more time outside of ourselves. We need to work towards the redemption of the community. When you read Jonah and you see the way that he displays his character in chapters 1 and 2, and as we'll look next week, it becomes pretty evident that Jonah really only kind of cared about himself. He didn't show much consideration for the outsider. And yet the king seems to display something completely different. So maybe the second thing that Nineveh reminds us of is that redemption is for the community and not just ourselves. The third thing that Nineveh reminds us of is that a godly life is better. The king says this, Who knows? God may turn and relent. Some translations say that, who knows, God may turn and repent. The spiritual depth and maturity of this statement is pretty astounding. I mean, the statement itself is void of assurance. He says, who knows? Who knows, God may turn. And yet it's filled 
with hope. Jonah's prophecy didn't secure some sort of ending, good ending for Nineveh. His prophecy didn't say, hey, if you do this, God will for sure take care of your city. His prophecy was, yet 40 days and destruction will come. Now, we could certainly imply that in there, it was, it was, uh, it, there was this idea of repentance should happen. That yes, 40 days, destruction will come, but if you repent, God may change his mind. But the statement doesn't actually say that. David Guzzig says this, We do not obligate God to forgive us when we repent. Instead, repentance appeals to God's mercy and not his justice. You see, in repentance, we seek God's mercy. We know and trust he's forgiven, but then we choose to live obediently. The Ninevites repented and changed without the assurance of their final standing before God. They thought maybe divine destruction was coming, but they changed anyway. And I think they changed because they knew it was the right way to live. I think they changed because living for God was a better way to live. How many Christians do you think stick around the faith simply because they're afraid of what will happen when they die? Maybe some sit here with us today. I mean, how many people forget that we're actually given a life to live right now? A life that matters. This idea of living a better life than God reminds me of something called Pascal's Wager. You may have heard of this, but Pascal, this great philosopher, said this. Even if the existence of God cannot be be determined through reason, a relational person, or I'm sorry, a rational person should wager as though God exists. Because living life accordingly has everything to gain and nothing to lose. You see, to follow Christ takes faith, trust, hope, love. But if you're simply to think about it from a rational point of view, living for Jesus is better than living any other way, regardless of what happens to us when we die. Because of what he offers now, because of the life that he calls us into. See, living for him has everything to gain and nothing to lose. I think living a godly life for the Ninevite was worth it, even if they were not going to be saved from divine destruction. We should care not only for ourselves, not only for our own well-being, but for others. We should desire to live a life of patience and hope and joy and love and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control regardless of what happens to us when we die. Because living a godly life is better here and now. Jonah only really shows concern for his own future, for his own security, for his own safety. And yet the Ninevites turn from their wicked and violent ways regardless of what's going to happen to them. They turn because they know that living a godly life is better. Nineveh reminds us that a godly life is better. From the the Ninevites, we learn these things about living a godly life. We do learn, I think, one thing from Jonah in chapter 3. I think we learn this, that God never gives up. You see, we're unable to run and hide from God. Jonah tried it. 
He tried to run, he tried to hide, and he couldn't get away. God still accomplishes his purposes. Jonah gave up on God, and yet God did not give up on Jonah. We live in a culture of giving up when things get tough. Think about this, just diets. Oftentimes people talk about, hey, I need to go on a diet, and we go out, we start for two weeks, three weeks, or, or workout regimen, we start, but then when it gets tough, when it actually causes you to have to change the way that you live your life, you give it up. Think about you have one bad meal at a restaurant. You go once, you have one bad meal, and you say, well, I'm never, ever going back to that place. Think about the Conan O'Brien show. They gave up on him. It was one of the saddest days of my last year. But more seriously, we give up on people. When friendships are strained, oftentimes we give up. When coworkers become difficult, oftentimes we just give up. When our faith seems too hard, we oftentimes just give up. I heard a sad story from my sister. She lives in this um, nice neighborhood on the north side of Spokane, and uh, their neighborhood has a, a lot of kids under the age of 10, and it's, it's actually a really close-knit neighborhood. They do Easter egg hunts together around um, Easter time, um, obviously around Easter time. They, do, um, they go trick-or-treating together, so there, there's this really great kind of community feel. Um, and two of these neighbors that live a couple houses apart were, were becoming very, very close. The, the gentlemen golfed together often. Their kids were uh, of similar age, and the family spent a lot of time together, and there was some sort of situation that happened, and nobody truly knows what it was, but it involved a go-kart and kids driving too fast on the road and, uh, and one family feeling like that was inappropriate and the other family feeling like it wasn't that big of a deal, and it has completely ripped apart their friendship and therefore ripped apart the community feel of this little neighborhood. These two families who live three or four houses apart from one another no longer speak to each other. They no longer do the Easter egg hunt. This was the first year it didn't happen. They no longer want to trick-or-treat with each other. And it's put this entire community in jeopardy because of the silly argument. It was too tough to work through it. And so they thought it might just be easier to give up and say, well, it, I just don't, it's too messy. I don't want to get into it. God continues to pursue. God does not give up. Even when Jonah gave up, God does not give up. He will not relent chasing after us. He doesn't stop redeeming. He doesn't stop reconciling. He doesn't stop moving in this world. God does not give up. Romans 8 says this, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. God does not give up. Throughout Scripture, we see the way that he demonstrates this by continuing to call on feeble men. From Moses to Samson to David to Jonah to Peter, throughout Scripture, God does not give up. Even if you've given up on him, he does not give up on you. That is the God we serve. He's compassionate and merciful and graceful, beautiful, 
and he continues to pursue. So Jonah, the story of Jonah teaches us that even if we give up, God does not give up. One of my favorite things about this story, and I'll close with this, is that we actually probably learn more about God and being a godly person from the Ninevites than we do from Jonah. I love the way that Scripture can illuminate new things to us. We learn more from a violent and wicked nation than we do from one of God's own people. Jonah, I think, thought he was on the inside. I thought maybe that he thinks that he got a get-out-of-jail-free card and so he could flee because he was on the inside. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 12. says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is essentially saying, you still don't get it. You've heard the stories from the past. You see me standing right before you, and yet you still don't believe. Your life still doesn't look like the life I've called you into. I think this scripture remains true for us. We've read the story of Jonah. We know about Jesus. We've seen the something greater that he refers to when he refers to himself, and yet we still miss it. Some of us continue to need a sign. We continue to run away from God's call in our lives. We continue to say starry, but go on sinning. We continue to live a life of complacency. And yet, Jesus declares that the Ninevites will be the ones standing at the judgment because they got it. They are the ones that turned their lives around. So just as this was a warning to the scribes and Pharisees, In Jesus' time, I think it's a warning to us to never be complacent on being on the inside. He's urging the scribes and Pharisees to learn from the unlikely source of the Ninevites. And in a similar way, I think we need to learn from the unlikely source of the Ninevites. So you have to ask yourself this question, who am I more like? Am I more like Jonah, or am I more like the Ninevites? What characteristics do I display more? We've seen Jesus, we've seen the power in our lives, we've seen it in this church, we've seen it in this community. We can trust that God will never give up. And yet I contend that still some of us struggle with this question. I think we probably all struggle with this question at some level. Who am I more like? So maybe it's time for us to stop being like Jonah and to start being more like the Ninevites. Maybe it's time for our life to be a life of true repentance. 
for our concerns to be about the community and its redemption and for us to operate in a godly life, knowing that it is better than anything else. Let's pray.